Hi, I'm Chelsea, and this is the Service Design Show. Hi everyone, my name is Mark and welcome to a brand new episode of the Service Design Show podcast. This show is all about helping you do more work that makes you feel proud by designing and delivering services that have a positive impact on people and business. My guest in this episode was born and raised in California but currently lives in New York where she is the co-founder of the Public Policy Lab, which was the first service design practice in the United States to fully focus on the government. Her name is Chelsea Maldin. In the next 30 minutes or so, Chelsea and I will be talking about implementing and scaling service design in a thoughtful way. We'll talk about what you can do when a client already knows what the solution to the challenge should be and how far can you go to make sure your solutions are used for good and not evil before we dive into the interview with chelsea don't forget that you can find more content exclusive content on our instagram page which you can find at instagram.com service design show and that you can always sign up for my free course on how to explain service design in plain English, and you can find that course at servicedesignshow.com slash free course. And as always, don't forget to add me on LinkedIn if you haven't done so already, and send me a message telling that you're listening to the episode of this podcast. So that's all for the introduction, and without further ado, let's quickly jump into the interview with Chelsea. Welcome to the show, Chelsea. Glad to be here. Um, for the people who don't know who you are, could you give like a 30 second introduction? Sure. I'm Chelsea Malden. I'm the executive director of the Public Policy Lab. We're an innovation lab for government based in New York City. All right. Um, if people want to learn more, they definitely need to check out the Public Policy Lab website because there are it's it's awesome i really like it oh thank you so much we've got a lot of case studies of the projects that we've done with new york city public agencies and other government partners over the years chelsea we were doing uh the pre-talk of this interview and we were also talking about service design and um we 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 said you started doing service design since 2009 do you actually record a recall the very first memory that you got in touch with service design? You know, I, I actually remember the very first time that I ever made a journey map, which mm -hmm, was actually mm -hmm. in 2003. And we didn't know to call it a journey map, nor did we uh -huh. call it service design. But my colleagues and I were working on a project about the New York City yellow taxi cab and mm -hmm. trying to think about how taxi cabs would be regulated differently if they were treated as New York City's most iconic public space. And we ended up doing a, a mapping of the taxi driver's experience connected to the taxi passenger's experience. And I thought, mm. wow, this is a really smart and interesting way to think about what it's like to ride in a cab. Um, but at that time, we had no idea that what we were doing was essentially um, applying a service design lens to something yeah. where that hadn't been done before. Mm. That, that is such a common story for a lot of service yeah. designers who say, I've been doing this for years. I didn't <laughs> know it had, an, it had a formal name. Um, 
What, what happened with the taxis eventually? Mm. Um, we made a bunch of recommendations to the agency <laughs> here in New York City that regulates taxis, um, some of which they were interested in and some of which they were not. That's pretty typical, I think, when you apply service design uh, and government. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, they and the taxi drivers, obviously, in the taxi industry has undergone a lot of change because of the advent of the network transportation yeah. companies. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chelsea, uh, we did something really interesting uh, before this episode that uh, I haven't done in any of the 66 episodes before this, and that is we crowdsourced some topics to talk about, which is really cool. And um, I have them ready over here. Great. You have the famous service design show question starter. So are you ready to do interview jazz with me? I am. All right. Let's start. I'm going to be... Um, selfish and i'm going to start with the topic that i uh, that i sort of uh recommended wanted to talk about mm -hmm. and that is scaling and implementation so can you do you have a question starter and can we make an interesting question out sure. of it sure um i'm gonna say why is scaling hmm. and implementation Or why is thoughtful scaling and implementation difficult in a public sector context? And why did you specifically say thoughtful implementation? Well, I think that lots of things get implemented, but they don't necessarily get implemented thoughtfully. I think that there is often a, um, a rush to push things that are really at the stage of prototypes into scaled implementation. And that's mm. often for um, really sort of respectable and understandable reasons. A lot of times um, government agencies are, are really excited to have professional design capacity available to them. And when a design team begins to create tools and interactions mm. and services for them, they're like, oh, this is so exciting, great. This is. This is better than what we have now. Let's get it out there into the hands of the public as soon as possible to begin improving their experience. But then that doesn't allow for thoughtful, um, small-scale rollout and testing, further iteration and improvement, meaningful evaluation of impacts. Like there is... Mm. Um, There's so much interest in having better solutions available to the public that it just means that you don't always have the opportunity to do the same kind of uh, carefully staged implementation and evaluation that might be yeah. might be helpful. Yeah. Mm. So recognizable. It's actually something that is so relevant in one of our projects that we're in right now. It's just so it, clients sort of feel like you're going through a design phase stage. And then you have like your prototype, of the mm -hmm. and then the next step is okay. Now we're going to roll it out. Right. It's it's rather it's it's not it's not even scaling. It's rollout. Right. They th they thinking ro rolling it out to everybody. We need to train everyone or whatever. What have you found? Have you found things that aid and help to do thoughtful scaling implementation? I think that. Um We now, 10 years into doing this work, are better storytellers about 
the steps in a design process. I think we do mm. a better job now than we did in early years of saying to partners at the beginning of a project, here are all of the steps that we expect that we will go through together. Let's talk about what that's going to mean in terms of time, in terms of budget, in terms of resources on the part of your agency, um, in terms of making a kind of long-term commitment to this work. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard for people sometimes to to balance the tension between a research and design process is exploratory, and therefore there's yeah. no way to know at the beginning exactly what you're going to end up with. But at the same time, the necessity of committing to seeing a process through a deliberate uh, field testing, piloting, and evaluation process when quite rightly, the partners say, but what is it exactly that we will be testing and evaluating? And you as the designer mm -hmm, have to say, mm -hmm. you know, we don't know yet. We'll, we'll have to find that yeah. out. Um, but, yeah. but just having that conversation early on um, is so critical for success. And we now very much expect that any project we do will involve this long period that we call phase zero, which is mm -hmm. all the conversations that happen before the project actually goes forward. And that's for the benefit of everyone. It's for the benefit of our public partners. It's for the benefit of our team so that we are, are very certain that we are actually going to be able to be good partners to one another. And be impactful right. in the end. So, it's so what I really like about this story is, uh, and what I've been trying to preach also is implementation starts from day one, right. from day zero. Right. There is the, the implementation within service design is like, it's an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. it, it's not something, it's, it's not a confined step, right? right? At least that's how I experience it. One of our project partners, um, a leader of an innovation team at a city government, uh, said to me once, he said, Chelsea, you should, you should never work with someone who can't implement what you design. And that, I think, in a government context is actually a real possibility because there's not a market pressure to bring our work forward from design to implementation. In fact, yeah. implementing a new service design or policy design solution in a government context often means a, a new outlay of investment, which is not mm. going to see returns in terms of sales. There are no sales. It's going to see returns in terms of a better citizen experience, um, which is you know everyone's yeah. end goal, but doesn't have the same yeah. kind of market pressures driving for it. Um, so really exploring how our partners intend to implement the things that we will design together. Um, it, mm. it has to happen before the project kicks off or else there is a, you know, some considerable danger that things will not actually get used. It, it will, if you don't have these conversations, it will become a discovery project and a project about exploration right. to inspire people rather than, well, which might also be interesting and good. Sure, but, but not, um, it doesn't in the end have the same scale of impact that we hope for. Yeah, and that's what we, we are not trend forecasters or right. trend watchers, right? We want to impact uh, 
the people who we are eventually working for. If you had to um, summarize your learnings about scaling and implementation in like one or two tips, what would you say next to start the conversation from day zero? Is there start the conversation else? from day zero. Commit to the implementation process from day zero. I think mm. um, there was a time when we were more willing than we are now to say, okay, we'll just engage in a sort of a discovery process with you, and then we'll see if that suggests Guilty. Guilty. it will lead to design. <laughs> or we'll engage in a discovery yeah. and design process with you, and then we'll see if that suggests how it can lead to implementation. I think more and more we seek partnerships where our partners are also agreed that implementation is where we're going. And we are mm. planning from the beginning that that is the intended goal. Um, yeah. I mean, this yeah. is not 100%. There certainly are times when yeah. partners come to us and say, hey, here's this thing. We know it's really important. We can't at this point commit to implementing, but we need some exploratory help just to even set the stage for that. Mm. Um, mm. But even then, we're looking for instances where there's um, a lot of pressure on the agency to make change. So there is a strong likelihood that exploratory work will lead to subsequent change. Mm -hmm. Super interesting topic. I think uh, this is one of, one of the biggest topics for me in, uh, in the design community right now. Chelsea, let's move on. Um, where shall we end with? Uh, so let's keep this one for the end. Okay, now we're going to do a crowdsourced um, topic. And this uh, topic has been brought forward by Emily uh, Tavulares. I'm hoping that I'm saying this somewhat Yay. right. And <laughs> Emily's great. And she's, Emily is great. Props to you, Emily. Um, <laughs> one of the topics she uh, submitted was jumping to solutions. And once again, the question for you, do you have a question starter hmm. goes along with this one? And I think that this question that she was asking was how, how do we help, um, I'm going to actually say, how can we help policymakers um, uh, keep an open mind rather than jumping to solutions? Like, as she said, assuming that blockchain is the answer to everything. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, which apparently it I, is. Again, super recognizable. I think we get a lot of uh, clients who say, we, uh, uh, not an app, but we need to do something with blockchain. Right. We, or maybe even we need a customer journey map, or we need, we need a persona. Like, you know, sure. starting, they, they start with the deliverable. They start with the end. So right. how can we, well, how can we help them to have an open mind about that? I think that part of this is just saying there there is no there is no design process without there being a research process like mm. i can't i can't cook a meal for you if i have no groceries you know i i have to have the raw ingredients which allow me to then actually generate the design outcomes um, mm. So there has to be a research process, and the research process is actually going to drive the design process. So sure, if you think, if you, dear partner, think that the solution is an app, 
Great. Absolutely. Keeping that in mind, we'll explore users' app usage and app desires. But mm. in as much as we are doing that, we are also going to be looking at other aspects of their lived experience and other things may present themselves, which they almost always do. Um, yeah. I, I have actually yet to do a project where users have said, what I wish is that there was an app. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think it's really, you said about cooking the meal, I always like to think and work in uh, analogies and metaphors. It's like somebody coming up to you and saying, okay, you need to, I, I, I need, you need to get me a soup. And then you're like, okay, I can get you a soup. First, get me the ingredients. Right. And then we'll, 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 we might end up with a soup, but it might become something else as well, right? Sure. <laughs> and that's, that, that's the thing we need to explore. And I think there's another thing so, here, which is just yeah? to this question of why might policymakers think that the solution is blockchain? Uh-huh. Part of this also has to do with understanding that as a designer, the users for whom you are designing include your partners or clients. It's not just the end user of the service or the policy or whatever it is that you're designing for. That in, in our instance, we may be thinking about members of the public and frontline service providers who are interacting with the public, but policymakers also have needs. Those needs also influence whether or not our design solutions are going to succeed. So part of that is exploring with them, what is it that makes you desire blockchain? Is it, mm. is it actually that you think that a ledger-based encryption system is going to solve your problem? <laughs> or is it that you have heard that this is a cool new thing that everyone should be using? And in fact, mm. then what this relates to is some desire on your part to be innovative, to be at the forefront of change, to, to show that you and your agency and your team are taking proactive steps to better serve people using modern tools. You know, like mm. exploring yeah. the motivations that clients or partners may have for saying, we think it is solution X is also part of your job. Absolutely. So empathizing with our own customers it's super important, and it is something that we often overlook. I think. I don't. I don't know. You have to that you have to empathize with them. I think that. Um, <laughs> I think that. I think honestly that the role of empathy in good service design is overstated. One hmm. one mm -hmm. can seek to understand without seeking to have the same felt experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Have you, one of the things I heard you say is sort of first acknowledge that uh, that we will be exploring solution X and then move on from there. Is that is that the way to sort of prevent roadblocks and barriers? Yeah, Acknowledging sure. I mean, first? I think if people say to you, we think that this thing is super important, then, I mean, one thing about being a a consulting designer to others is that they are always more expert on their service and policy than you are. And you just yeah. have to acknowledge and respect that from the beginning. They have all kinds of information about how their current system works that you don't have at the beginning of the project. So if someone is telling you that a particular 
um, outcome is desirable or a particular need is the primary need, then that's absolutely something that you should listen to and try to engage with. Mm. But you have to also leave yourself enough space and sort of carve out the right to have the space to uncover things that are unexpected. Mm. Uh, maybe it's also about uh, being humble as a designer in, um, in a way that, you know, an app might actually be the solution. Sure. We, we, right? We, we don't know either. Uh, right. And say, saying that it isn't the solution up front sort of put, right. puts yourself in a position where, where, where we shouldn't be per se. There's always a tension between um, leaving one's scope so wide open that you just wander in the wilderness, picking up all of the rocks and looking underneath them, or so narrowly defining the scope of what you're engaging around that you miss seeing some really amazing opportunities. So mm. trying mm. to find that middle space where you give yourself enough room, but not too much room, um, I think is often yeah. part of the challenge when you're first scoping what your inquiry areas are going to be. Mm -hmm. um, if you, again, if you have to summarize this and um, give one specific answer to Emily or one tip to Emily, what would it be in regards to clients that want to start with the solution rather than with exploration? So I think two things. One, that you commit always to feeding your design process with a robust research engagement so that you can uncover other potential solutions, while at the same time exploring why it is that your partner or client desires mm. the thing that they desire. Yeah. Sounds, sounds good. Are you ready to move on sure. to the third topic? And that's a crowdsourced one as well, which is um, Philip Frost brought it forward. And uh, we'll explain the backstory of this in a second. But uh, the topic is design for good. So I would say, how far can a designer go in guaranteeing an outcome which is a, a good outcome for design? Which uh, the, the, the sort of back, background story for this was that Philip said um, recently they shut down the internet in Zimbabwe uh, regarding the elections or, uh, yeah. And the question was, you know, what happens if we use design or service design for creating change that's in benefit for policymakers, right. government, public services? Which, which might not be, which might not have the same agenda as the society mm -hmm. or the community or the in individuals in that society have. That that's a th that can be a tension, right? Sure. Um, and I think it's actually a really important question when you are, and I think this goes for people who are working as we do with government agencies. I think it also goes for people who are working in the private sector and who have to, who who should also mm. be asking are the things that I am designing for my employer or my client, do they actually generate benefit in the world or are they benefiting my employer or client but destroying democracy, for example? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that you have, you have to have some 
professional code of conduct, which is based on a set of moral values. Um, I, I can't prescribe what other people's moral values are, but I would hope that everyone would agree that we should seek to do work that doesn't cause harm. That mm. you should ask, is, is the implementation of this thing that I am designing, is it going to be harmful to people's well-being? Is it going to deprive them of, of liberty? Is it going to deprive them of opportunity? Um, is it going to deprive them of human connections or relationships that are meaningful? So like thinking about the degree to which um, one's work, if fully implemented and scaled, generates positive outcomes that significantly outstrip any negative outcomes and and explicitly have you sought to imagine how your work might generate negative outcomes for some people because if you are mm. for example designing for to give a brief example we have done some work uh, with the city of new york thinking about how to deliver public services through digital channels how can government services be more digitally available so that's great, except what if you are um, a senior citizen who doesn't have access mm. to internet in your home? And even if you did, you're not comfortable using computers. What happens when the agency no longer has a phone number that you can call, just assumes that you will use the website to get information? Um, what if you are uh, someone who's not a legally documented immigrant? Are you, how are you going to feel comfortable interacting with a government agency if there's no mediated community-based source for you to go to for information as opposed to going straight to mm. a government provider of information? So like thinking about how something that might be super desirable for a broad middle of users may actually create significant problems for people on the edges of the user base. Um, it's... Yeah. Asking those questions throughout one's development of solutions is really important. This is really interesting because it sort of um, uh, keeps you sharp on thinking what are the side effects of the thing we're putting out into the world, sure. or maybe what are the long-term, uh, what is the long-term mm -hmm. impact of the thing we're going to deliver? Right. I think yeah. one thing yeah. that's, super obvious in the work that we do that I worry sometimes is not super obvious in other people's design contexts is that when you are designing public services and you're designing them in an environment which is as radically diverse as New York City, where you have people of extraordinarily different income levels, very, very different personal backgrounds, different education levels, different linguistic capacities, all of that, mm. you are actively forced to consider the ways in which the users of a service are not the same as you, the designer, and that your own lived experience is not actually a useful proxy for the experience mm. that the user is going to have with the policy or the service that you're designing. So you have to push yourself to think, what would this be like for someone who is not me? And I worry sometimes that in commercial contexts, where you have 
generally middle-class people, which is what designers typically are, designing <laughs> for other middle-class consumers, mm. that there's not enough thoughtful engagement with how yeah. that service or tool may affect people who are more marginalized. Yeah, so designing for the, ex let's say the extremes, right. uh, what you're doing, makes it more obvious that you need to spend more time and, and thoughtful action into understanding your users, right. while in situations where your end users are more similar mm -hmm. to you, who might overlook that. I think there's that. something else to say about this question of how far can you make sure that your work is doing good. I mean, one thing that is uncomfortable, but I think super necessary, is to notice who has power. When you are designing for the state, the state has vastly more power than the citizen does. The state can incarcerate you. The state can, yeah. in the United States, take your life away. The state can control your body and your experience in profound ways. And so thinking about the ways in which the things that you are going to be designing are actually instruments of state power and the imbalance between the power that those instruments wield and the power that the citizen has changes the decisions that you make as a designer. So, and even in a commercial context, thinking about the ways that some commercial entities now have profound amounts of power, social power, and you as a designer have to, I think as a, as a moral actor, and also as a professional who has professional ethics, it's incumbent on us all to ask who in this context has power and who does not? And am I um, specifically engaging with the question of whether or not I am protecting the rights of people who have less power? That's a big question, right? That, that, yeah, that's right. And I, and, you know, we, we have this example of Zimbabwe and it looks like really distant and really far away, but uh, it's probably much closer than we might think, right? We're, all, we're always working in lar usually large corporate organizations where there is a power disbalance. Right. I don't know if that's a proper English word, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chelsea. Um, like all the other guests, I want to, you, you've provided so much inspiration already in this episode, but I'm really curious, is there a question that you'd like to ask us, the viewers and listeners of the Service Design Show, to think about, to contemplate upon, to share our thoughts on? I think, um, I wonder where we go from here. I feel that we, um, 10 or 15 years ago, we were, as a design community, asked to begin designing services as opposed to individual artifacts. And that work has actually led to work where we design systems and we're asked to mm -hmm. apply our design capacity to questions of sort of systems at scale as opposed to the discrete delivery of a particular service at a particular moment. Um, so I wonder um, what the next step is, what people think is the next step in where design can be applied to actually address some of these questions of power mm. and inequality and opportunity. How can designers 
even more potently apply our tools to social questions. What's the next stage? Right. What's the next frontier yes. for design in general? Great. I'm, I'm really curious how the community will respond. Uh, so do leave a comment, guys and girls. Chelsea, uh, I want to thank you so much uh, for sharing your experience all the way from New York City. Uh, I hope and I, you inspired me a lot and I hope you also inspired thanks, the people Mark. Uh, as part of this community. So thanks for your time. My pleasure. So that's almost the end of this episode. If you enjoyed this episode with Chelsea, don't forget to share it with somebody who might benefit from it as well. And if you're looking for more content, head over to our YouTube page or Instagram account and you'll find more interesting content. So thanks again for listening to the Service Design Show. It was my pleasure to have you. I look forward to see you in two weeks time with a brand new episode. Thanks for listening and have a great day.